Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all Welcome to the Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Great to be here today. Beautiful fall day to take your dog for a walk. Uh, the leaves are starting to change, and on Friday I'm going to Vermont and Massachusetts, so I'll really be feeling the fall this season. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm excited. I haven't been. I went to college in Vermont, and I haven't been back in years. Do you when you when you make that trip? Do you pack up any of the doggies and take them with you? No. Okay. No. <laughs> Probably nope. a good idea. They all stay home, and now we have goats and chickens too, and none of them are coming either. You so. can't take the whole farm. No, you can't. Um, Eric, how? Uh, so, kind of a little while ago now, a couple months maybe, I talked with Marcia St. John of St. John Creamery about their fabulous That's goat's right. milk. Yeah. And sent you home with some. Did you have a chance to give Abby and... She's been loving it. Yeah. Yeah. The cats, for some reason, not big fans, but... Yeah, uh, cats for you. They weren't really raised, you know, having milk at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, as long as I've known them anyway. I'm yeah. sure when they were kittens, <laughs> they were, but... Uh, sure. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. They didn't seem to have much interest in it, but uh, Abby the Beagle just can't get enough of it. Just loves it. Nice. So. Good. Good, good. Well, we have been, uh, already have heard some great results. We've been really getting the word out, and we've got one dog who is kind of just generally a little itchy, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a German Shepherd, and he's stopped itching since he's been on the goat's milk. Beautiful. And, um, and he's already on a raw food diet, so it's not, you know, not like it's the kibble or whatever that he's eating. Right. And then we have this other dog who... Um, after he eats dinner, always goes and, like, suckles his blanket. Hmm. Kind of a little funny little behavior little that he quirk. does. <laughs> he doesn't do it when he has goat's milk with his dinner. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So they they didn't notice it really until they ran out, and then he started again, and they were like, oh, my gosh. Well, he's <laughs> trying to get milk out of the blanket. Yeah, I don't know. And he's already got the milk, so he doesn't know. need to. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we love that. St. John Creamery and Farm Dog Naturals, two of our uh, partners here on the show, great companies. Uh, Farm Dog Naturals has a great line of um, skin products and, and a household cleaner and a relaxing aromatherapy product. FarmDogNaturals.com is their website. You can get them from anywhere in the world. And uh, St. John Creamery is only available to those lucky folks in Western Washington stjohncreamery.com is their website. But if you don't live in this area, you can get, there are other brands of goat's milk that you can get. Um, But if you do live locally, then we recommend that you get the local stuff. And we know that that's grass-fed and the goats are happy and all that good stuff. So so, um, we have a caller, speaking of other parts of the country... Uh, we have a caller who uh, listens to the show and has for a long time, I believe. We have Linda from New York, who is um, going to be talking with me today about her dog, Keen, who has some, um, I think, so, well, what she said is stranger danger. So, Linda, are you there with us? I sure am. Hi, Julie. Hi. 
So um, now we talked when you first we did a phone consult when you first brought Keen home. And how old is he now? He is about a year and two months, according to the math that I did from the time at which he was adopted. Um, mm-hmm. they, they estimated him to be about five, five and a half months. When you got him. Mm-hmm. Okay. And do you know what kind of dog he is? Breeds? Um, Breeds? I did actually do a couple of the DNA tests uh, that are available online. Mm-hmm. And one of the results was very funny. It came up as uh, St. Bernard and um, Staffy, which I think is probably what's in there. He looks like American Staffordshire. And the other test came up as um, a mix of um, Staffy, Boxer, and um, Doberman. But he's pretty small. He's only about 48 pounds. Yeah. Uh, so Probably not St. Bernard, huh? No, probably not. <laughs> that happens with these breed DNA tests. I recently did a post on our Facebook page about that. I think it was actually a shared post that I did from Patricia McConnell's um, page about these breed DNA tests. And and I've had a similar experience as well where it was like part of the information was helpful because they were like definitely lab. This was my first dog who has since passed away. Definitely lab. And then they were like, he is also giant schnauzer <laughs> and Saluki and Australian. And it was like. Four other breeds that were like really kind of out there. I was like, eh, I don't know about that, but yeah. So <clears throat> now you reached out to me, um, and I said, "Would you come on the show and talk about this? Because this would be a great opportunity to just kind of get some good information out there to others who might be, you know, working with dogs who are challenged in this way as well." So tell us a bit about what what is your dog doing you know, what is the challenging or what are the challenging behaviors that you're looking for some guidance around? Yeah. So at about 10 months, I would say he started um, exhibiting signs of, um, I guess you'd call it fear aggression. He started barking at strangers, Um, you know, mostly on the street. I live here in the city, so I'd be walking out with him and he would, he just bark at somebody, you know, pull on the leash and, um, you know, you can definitely see, you know, his hackles are going up and he's definitely nervous. <clears throat> and, you know, it's a concern because I know that he's stressed out, but also it's, you know, disconcerting to people on the street when they're being barked at by a dog that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I've done a ton of reading, uh, just trying to kind of get a handle on exactly what the causes might be. Um, you know, I worked with a trainer and she said there's a, a great possibility that he was under socialized. Um, when he was in the shelter system. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, regardless of what the cause was, now I have a dog who definitely has some fear reactivity. So just trying to kind of figure out what I can do to help him. I've done some counter conditioning and uh, and just trying to see where that will go. Mm-hmm. And when did you say he started doing this? Um, around 10 months. Okay, so you had him for... Five-ish months before right. he started doing this, and how did he behave before that? Was he friendly with strangers? Yeah, and in fact, because I adopted him at about five and a half months, I knew that there was going to be some catch-up, regardless of whether or not he had been socialized or not mm-hmm. properly socialized. Mm-hmm. I knew that you know I was going to try to do everything I could to catch him up. Um, so I tried to introduce him to people on the street, um, as many age groups and everything as I could. Um, I had kids feed him. I had um, 
guys in uniform is feeding him, the UPS guy and the mailman. and Oh, you know, the UPS guy. That's yeah. the worst. <laughs> <laughs> and he really, really did, he did really, really well. Mm-hmm. And he didn't seem to be reactive at all. He was very receptive. I mean, he was a puppy, so probably more receptive than, you know, an adolescent dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there was a very distinct market around the 10-month period where it was like an overnight thing. He just started barking at strangers. Do you remember the first time? Uh, yeah, I do. Can you tell us about that? Um, it was, um, I would think I was just walking down the street, and I think he encountered a gentleman who was carrying something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might have been an umbrella or a plastic bag or something like that. And he just started barking, and I thought maybe it was the plastic bag, and I thought maybe it was just an isolated incident. But then I started noticing he was doing it more and more frequently, um, particularly with men, but he t- it's not limited to men. It's pretty much any, any stranger he encounters, kids, mm-hmm. um, women. Mm-hmm. And do you remember what your response was that first time? Um, I think I probably had, um, I think at first I thought he was just, uh, it was over exuberance and like he was curious and trying to pull and bark at the person because he wanted to play mm-hmm. because that was, you know, kind of his typical behavior before that. He has a little bit of, he had a little bit of frustration and tolerance right out of the gate mm-hmm. um, because probably again, because he hadn't had a ton of socialization or training or any kind of, you know, um, structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I remember thinking that it was, it was his attempt to kind of like get access to the stranger mm-hmm. um, like he had had in the past. Um, but then as it started happening more frequently and I was doing a lot of reading about, you know, fear periods and dogs, I thought, well, maybe he's going through this classic like 10-month period, you know, 10-month uh, reactivity period. Um, and then when it didn't stop, then I said, oh, boy, now I've got a dog who's definitely got some fear issues. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what you did in response to those initial ones when he first very first started doing it if not the first like what you're out there you're on the street and he's doing this behavior and then you know you're thinking well maybe you know you're trying to analyze this or that but do you remember what you actually did I think I probably had you know a very knee-jerk reaction which was to kind of pull him away from the person Mm -hmm. and apologize Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know because I really didn't know exactly what was going on but because I had been doing a lot of re- a reading about it and I was working with a trainer, um, we kind of nailed down very quickly that it was it was um, a fear reactivity to, to strangers. Mm-hmm. So I knew at that point kind of what I was working with. But again, I was hoping that he would grow out of it. I was hoping that it was a short, like an adolescent fear period and that he would, he would move through it. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. Um, so... You know, I start I started the counter conditioning pretty quickly. I don't I don't feel like it's made a ton of it hasn't made a huge impact on him, um, but I continue to work on that with him. So the first few times that he did this behavior, you pulled him. You just sort of pulled him aside, mm-hmm. acknowledged the person, and just said, you know, oh, sorry or whatever. And then did you you know ask him to sit or did you try to comfort him or soothe him or do you remember? Your interaction I, well, I, with him? Yeah. Um, I definitely did not comfort him because I told I was told that that was a really bad idea to comfort a dog that was already fearful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had read that long before I had adopted him. Um, but we've always used positive reinforcement with him, too, you know, because I started reading, you know, Ian Dunbar very, very early on. So I knew that 
positive reinforcement was going to be the best way to go. Um, I think I probably try to distract him with food and move him along. Okay. But there was no like, oh, Porky, no, you're okay, buddy. You know, right, right. Um, I just try to be like, I try to be light about it yeah. and kind of move him along. Okay. So you're definitely right about the comforting factor, and it's something that people do all the time because it's what is instinctive to us. If it was a, a six-year-old child who was afraid of something, you'd, you know, bring him over and put your arms around him and tell him it's okay and, you know, comfort them. And then they're like, okay, I feel I feel soothed. Yeah. With dogs, it registers more as praise so the kicker is that not only is it not effective in getting rid of that undesirable behavior, but it actually can reinforce it. Because if you took a video of yourself doing that and then watched it back muted, it would look the same as if you were praising him. Yeah. So um, so that's good. I just wanted to make to kind of clarify clarify that because that's something that I see when I'm working with clients here all the time. And it's because it's what's instinctive to us as people. Yeah. And it's one of the biggest ways that, um, I don't know about biggest, but as far as uh, communication goes, it's a very common misunderstanding and one of those ways where people and dogs just kind of miss each other um, as far as what comes naturally. So that's good that you weren't doing that because what can happen is that, let's say it was the first time you did it and then you're like, whoa, you know, I've never seen that before. And you're like, hey, buddy, it's okay. You're okay. And then that he's like, oh, well, okay, I guess that got reinforced and then he does it again and it gets reinforced and he does it again and whatever, right? And then you just yeah. end up reinforcing the behavior. It definitely, know, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I no doubt would have done that had I not known. I mean, I'm a pretty sensitive person and he's yeah. like my baby. So it would have been, it, it would have been very difficult for me not to have that response had I not known that that was exactly the opposite. Yep. Um, so then it's about so it i do think that it sounds like and of course i've never met this dog you know you're in new york i'm in seattle right um so we just want to kind of acknowledge that it's challenging to evaluate this type of behavior especially when we're talking about anything around aggression or any any sort of behavioral anything it can be kind of challenging to accurately assess it over the phone right Right. Um, but I've worked with enough dogs that I can definitely kind of throw a bunch of stuff out there. And I know that you're working with at least one person there locally so that you do have somebody that you're kind of checking in with and who has met him and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I do think that it's probably age-related spookiness. And dogs are adolescent from six months to two years. So mm-hmm. he's still adolescent. Um but it's not, so, and it's kind of textbook. A lot of dogs get this, kind of call it the teenage weirds, where they'll get spooked by kind of random things. Like, I mean, it could be like a, a bag on the floor of your kitchen that's not usually there, and the dog walks in. And if they ha- are kind of having an especially hard time with adolescence, they walk in the room and they're, whoa, you know, what is that? And they get spooked. Um Big hats, big jackets that are flowy, bl- blowing in the wind, umbrellas, big, that's a big one. Big bags, um, st- uh, statues of lions that people have out in, on in the front of their steps, you know, or whatever, yeah. whatever kind of animal. And the dog's like, what is that? You know, so uh, 
it is a fairly common phenomenon for sure with dogs. And it, you know, it, it definitely requires some trial and error to kind of figure out what works best for him as an individual. So some dogs might be, because of their temperament, and this is where it gets tricky to do anything over the phone because uh, it really, it takes a lot of like, okay, well, let's try this and see how he does. Let's try this and see how he does. Or let me see the behavior and get a feel for the nuances of where the dog might be coming from or how he might be feeling. Um, and then kind of try, and then that, based off of that sense, I might say, well, let's try this first versus this. Um, so generally speaking, though, what is always necessary is some sort of structure. So putting structure in place to give him guidance for what and letting him know what you want him to do in the presence of whatever it is that is making him feel the way that he's feeling that's causing that, you know, aggressive behavior. So is he, when he sees this trigger now, so it's been happening for a few months now, does he bark and lunge on leash? Yes. Okay. And uh, how close does the does the thing need to be? Do they have to be on the same side of the street or is he doing it on the, if they're even on the other side of the street? No, it's usually very close proximity. So I would say within a few feet and it's not every time. Yeah. Um, and it's not every time it's a man, you know, with a hat or yeah. a uniform or a bag. It's, it's very much a mood thing. Sometimes we'll go down for a 20 minute walk. Yeah. No, no response at all. It's like he's walking down the street by himself. Yeah. And other times he's right at it. As soon as we leave the building, he starts, you know, he, the first person he sees, he barks at. Mm-hmm. Also typical of the adolescent factor is that it's not consistent, which makes it a lot harder to work with because you don't know, you know, the easier something is or the more predictable a behavior is to set up, the easier it is to work through because you just know what to do to set it up. But when it's right. inconsistent, you know, you're you're like, are you going to do it this time or not? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so structure. Um, now. I have worked with thousands of dogs over 15 years um, with varying all different types of dogs, breeds, personalities, sensitivity levels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, There is room with mm, most, most, most cases of this type of behavior. There is a need for the communication of don't do that. So I am not all positive. Um, That's just not how the world works and it's not how dogs communicate with each other. So I'm not talking about anything, of course, abusive, but having a quality of communication that you're able to effectively let him know not acceptable, just like a parent would sometimes need to correct a child and let them know, okay, that's not acceptable behavior. You, You can't do that. Do this instead. And, and good job doing this. And so we try to set them up for success as much as we can and focus on what the right choice is. But there is oftentimes a need for the, um, it's really more of a parental figure. I don't like to use the word, you know, alpha or dominant because it's like that's such, there's such a disconnect with that for us. We're like, well, what does that mean? Mm. Do I have to be militant? <laughs> um, 
So it's more of a parent-child kind of dynamic where, like, you are the one who sets the limits. And there's just some times where you have to be like, no, you can't, you know, don't do that and do this instead. And then when he does whatever you ask him to do, then you praise him for that. So praising him for work that he's doing. So I'm not sure what sort of, you said counter conditioning. So I'm not sure if you're just trying to have him have some sort of different association using food. Yes. Um, But with fear behavior like that, food often doesn't touch it. It's like if you were walking down a sidewalk and there was some sketchy guy that you just had a weird feeling about, whether it was accurate or not, I mean, the guy might be fine, but you are like, ooh, I don't have a good feeling about this person. I'm feeling fear. If he handed out a $20 bill to you, would that necessarily change how you feel about him? Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) It made me feel even more uncomfortable. Yeah, you're like, that's even more sketchy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And regardless of how much, you know, if we're talking about level of value. So like with dogs, it's sort of an analogy for like, you know, kibble, low level, dry biscuit, like low value versus like turkey deli meat or string cheese or bacon or something where the dog's like, seriously, I'm getting this right now. But in the presence of a fear response, that's not going to, it doesn't negate it. It's, uh, it would be great if it did. Um, association works is a very, very powerful phenomenon. Super, super powerful phenomenon. But we, we can only associate things where the dog doesn't, like, that have such an intense negativity, it's already attached to whatever it is. So if it's like, Oh, I've never seen that before in my life. Like, or I've never, like a clicker, for example, right? Clicker training. Click and treat, click and treat, click and treat. Sometimes dogs are actually a little nervous of the clicker if they're really sound sensitive, mm-hmm. but it's benign enough that they will eventually get over it because they're like, oh, that's kind of weird. But I guess I could have my mind changed about that. There's a difference between that's kind of weird versus like, I feel afraid. So the association thing, it only works. And again, trial and error. If if you were like, hey, we, we did the association thing and he's over it. Awesome. <laughs> you know, but if it's not working, it's not working. And that's the thing about working with dogs is that they will always let us know whether we're being effective or not. Because it's either going to work or it's not. Right. So it's constant self-evaluation and trying all these different things. And one of the things that's challenging about this industry is that, as you know, as someone who has researched a lot even before you got the dog, there's so much information and so many, um, co- so much conflict of ideas. The, yeah. Do this, don't do that. And then the other, the next person, no, don't do this, do this instead. And then the next person, don't do either, you know, you're wrong, I'm right. No, you're wrong, I'm right. No, you're wrong, I'm right. And my experience is that it's not so much about you're wrong, I'm right, as it is about, hey, let's look at all the tools available, all of the philosophies that anyone has ever come up with, except for the ones that are ethically, I mean, I think that sort of goes without saying, like, we're not going to be abusive. Right. And, like, let's try try everything and see what works for this dog as an individual. Some dogs need more structure. Some dogs need big consequences in order to listen at all. Other dogs, if you try to give them a big consequence, you're going to trash them emotionally because they're too sensitive or they're too fearful. One of the things about dogs that have 
terrier and especially bully terrier mix is that they can get uh, a rush from the adrenaline because of how we made them. So that can actually reinforce it. It feels good. Boston Terriers, French Bulldogs, Pitties, all those guys. And then even Terriers like um, Jack Russell Terrier, you know, like those guys. So not not bull, t- bull Terrier mixes, but just Terriers. Like the way that they are wired and the job that they're meant to do requires them to kind of be fully 100% on or off. And so they can get, they're sort of vulnerable to liking how that feels. And that can actually reinforce the behavior, you know, just intrinsically. So, and it can be really difficult to get them out of that too, because the energy gets so big and you're trying to come in and interrupt that undesirable behavior and you're coming up against this really big energy. And how do you um, come enter into the equation in a way that's going to interrupt that behavior? Right. And a lot of times the answer to that is some sort of correction or consequence because the the nature of that is that it just makes you stop and think I just got a ticket in the mail of this school zone near our house it's a 20 mile an hour school zone and they have those photo enforced I don't know if they have those where you are Mm -hmm. photo enforced blinking yellow lights 20 miles an hour school zone photo enforcement I'm going 28 miles an hour it's, you know, coming off of the summer where the, the lights haven't been flashing because there's been no school and I'm not used to it. 28 miles an hour. Speed limit is 30. I'm going under, the, you know, it's not like I'm going 45 through a 20, right? Right. I got a ticket in the mail for $238. Wow. Yeah. It's just happened. And I am driving very slowly through that section again. <laughs> Because I don't want another $238 ticket. That's so much money. Yeah. I'm like, man, for eight miles over, oh, that feels pretty rough. Yeah. So that is a way of making me think. So regardless of how much I like the song that's playing, that's on the radio, or whatever else is going on in my mind as I'm driving, I'm going to, and everyone else does too, because they've all probably gotten tickets as well. Everybody slows down to 20 because they've all probably gotten that whopper of a ticket. If it was a $4 ticket or a $15 ticket, maybe even like a $40 ticket, it wouldn't have that much of an impact on me. It'd be kind of annoying, but it might not cut through all the noise and make me think about not making that same mistake again. So what qualifies as an effective correction is one of the most important places... Um, or ways that dogs differ as individuals. With consequences comes a lot of responsibility on our part to be sensitive to the dog's sensitivities. How sensitive is this dog? I mean, could could the correction be you sort of, you know, when he lunges, kind of, you know, hold him back with the leash and then get in front of him, facing him, and sh- shuffle your feet into him? You know, like scuffing your feet on the ground? Mm-hmm into him in a way that moves him back a few steps and telling him of like a firm no, knock it off. Some dogs, they're like, oh my gosh, that was intense. And I am really going to think twice about doing that behavior again. 
So even just a little bit of body language that has some oomph to it can be enough to interrupt dogs. Um, that would be like a lower level, easier dog to work with, more uh, uh, more sensitive dog. And then and then maybe um, you know squirt bottle with water, or leash and collar correction with a prong collar. Although with bull breeds, with this type of behavior, you have to be careful because sometimes that can make it worse. Sometimes it shuts it down and it makes the dog think and mind the leash and not pull and it's beautiful. And other times it can cause them to get more amped up um, and, and then it also has to be used properly as with any training tool has to be used properly. But I'm not anti-prong collar as many are. Um, but the thing is is that you want to put structure in place first. So, And you don't know when he's going to do it. Sometimes he does it. Sometimes he doesn't. So you're just going to have to really work him, engage his brain. Um, if you haven't already, teach him to walk at your side, you know, in a heel. Stop okay. and have him sit. And then back in a heel. And really get his brain engaged and get him working. And then he's in a heel command. And then somebody is walks past you that, for, for whatever reason, he gets set off by. And then he lunges you know, across your body at the person. And the correction happens because he broke the heel. It's not about the person. And so that's where we need to be careful too because, again, kind of back to that association point that we talked about at the beginning, you know, the positive association doesn't, oftentimes doesn't combat a, a strong, if there's already strong fear attached to something, you can't just buy him off with treats. But we also don't want to be just having him associate some sort of correction with the stranger, right? And have him think, oh, every time a person passes, I get squirted in the face with water or whatever. Right. So that's why we have to be really clean with our communication with the dog and have him really understand that he's getting the correction for not doing the job that you told him to do. Not right. not because of the person. It's like, I don't care what's going on around us. If I ask you to heal, I need you to do that regardless. And so, of course, you're going to you'll need to if you haven't you know worked on this type of um, training yet, then you would have to start him if he's in a learning phase like, well, I haven't taught him to heal yet. Well, OK, so then you're going to need to teach him that not in the presence of any distractions so that he's not coming up against that as he's also trying to learn a new concept. Right. So then you would have to build up the level of distraction as much as you can. And that can be hard when you have to take him out to go to the bathroom, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of complications to this sort of thing, but I think what's missing a lot in um, most of what you read out there and you know, is that there's sort of this this all positive, all positive, all positive, and and yes, I mean we we want to have training be a positive experience. I mean, try to set the dog up for success. Be respectful. Be super sensitive to the dog. Understand them with a level of depth that respects who they are as an individual. All that kind of stuff. But to say that there's never any consequence for anything is just like. When did, like, how does that work? Because that's not any natural phenomenon or an a relationship wise that I'm aware of. So, right. um, 
And like I said, every dog is different. So what qualifies as an effective correction for him, you'll, you'll have to figure out. And as you're in that process, you always want to start low. Right. Because I'd rather you be ineffective. Oh, let's try this. Oh, that didn't work. He didn't care about that. Okay, well, let's try this. And just sort of slowly increase the level of intensity of the correction um, until you find something that does work for him. You'd want to go that direction, of course, as opposed to coming from the other direction of starting with, like, the highest possible, most intense thing that could totally freak him out. And then you have that to repair because that can absolutely happen. And like I said before, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with providing consequences. You have to make sure the dog understands what it's for. So timing has to be right right on. You have to be consistent, all that kind of stuff. But um, So now there's other things that I want to talk about too, and I know that you're already kind of keyed into like, well, you kind of mentioned flea medication. Well, what could flea medication have to do with this type of behavior? So let's take a break and we'll kind of, talk more um, about what Linda has already tried and her thoughts about maybe flea medication causing this and kind of keep going with this fear-aggressive behavior in her dog. So we'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. The Natural Pet Pantry is Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different protein options to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, raw or cooked, can be purchased from their two stores in Burien and Kirkland, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your door. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information. I'm Julie Forbes, and my first choice for my pet's food is the Natural Pet Pantry. It's the educated choice. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Missing Link Supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, October 9th, it's a best Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen in the studio. Dr. Nels can help with emotional, behavioral, or physical problems. He can test for allergies, drug, or supplement compatibility and dosages for you or your animal friends. Call us for a free remote session. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. This is Julie Forbes. I'm excited to tell you about Farm Dog Naturals, a company that handcrafts herbal remedies for the all-natural dog. Quality and integrity are must-haves for anything that I recommend. Certified eco-friendly and cruelty-free, their products address issues like stress and anxiety, itching, hot spots, crusty noses, as well as pet urine, stains, and odor. Farm Dog Naturals is guaranteed, and I'm so happy with the results I'm seeing. Shipping is available worldwide from their website, farmdognaturals.com, or you can ask for them at a retailer near you. Again, that's farmdognaturals.com. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities. You name it, and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? 
Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me, host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) Multicultural, multidimensional even. Alternative Talk 1150. And now, back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Hold it on over, move over, nice dog, cause a mad dog's moving in. All right, welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, and we're back talking with Linda about her dog, Keen, in New York. And you said some really great words um, during the break. Would you share those all again (laughs) so that the audience can hear? Because I I really have heard um, what you have said a, a lot, a lot, a lot. So will you share that about, you know, this dog versus your past dog? Oh, yeah. I mean... You know, one of the things I think one of the most important and most simple but most important things that I've learned from from the show, and I've learned a lot of things, is that every dog is an, is an individual. And, you know, I had a dog before, and he was wonderful, and he loved everybody, and he was, you know, very easygoing. Um, and then I adopted Keen, and the first thing I had to learn was this dog is not Alex, and he is never going to be Alex. Mm-hmm. And I have to, I have to work with him, and I have to love him, and learn with him, in a way that is specific to him. Mm-hmm. And I have to, you know, I have to help him address the issues that are specific to him, because he is an individual like every person is, you know. And did you get to a point within yourself, sort of mentally and emotionally, where you stopped comparing him with your old dog? It was pretty early on, and I remember I remember first having that response, like, oh, he's not like Alex, and I remember thinking about how you say that, you know, every dog is an individual, and it was really probably the most important thing that I could, I could have gone into the relationship with that dog with, because mm-hmm. if I tried to compare him, you know, I would be disappointed, and it wouldn't be fair to him either. Yep. And yeah. I love him for who he is. You know, yeah. I love him for all of his quirks and, you know, his he's got a great personality and he is who he is. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard because you when, especially when you go from, you know, sort of this easy dog who you just had this really amazing bond with and was just, you know, like the perfect dog kind of, and you're just like, oh man, you know, and then they pass and, and we feel the, the grief of that. And, you know, oh, it just is rough, you know, it's real, it's rough. We, anybody who's been through it, you know, knows who's, at least anyone who's probably listening to this show, experiences depth of grief when a dog passes away, you know? your heartaches and you miss them and you get another dog and it's different. And I think it's especially hard when the dog, the second dog is a lot harder than the first dog. 
And you're like, well, like where I was getting another dog kind of looking for that to have that same experience again in my life. And it just is different this time. And it also takes time. You know, I mean, oftentimes when a dog passes away, you've lived with them for 10 years, 15 years, seven years, whatever, you know, um, you, you get your rhythm, you get, you, you kind of get to that sweet place and, and you sort of forget maybe about how hard it was at first. That was the case with my first dog. He was real tough at first, but then when he was 12, you know, and just later in life anyway, um, probably any year after three, it was bliss, you know? Mm. Um, and then you start new again and it's, you don't know each other and, and then maybe the dog also has behaviors that you didn't have to deal with before. And then it's like, oh, so it is it is um, kind of good to know about that. And then, like you said, it's not helping anybody, you know, you nor the dog to come like, oh, well, my old dog never did this. You know, my old dog never did this and that everyone is different and to, you know, appreciate him for who he is as an individual and to kind of honor that and to find where the bond is with him. Yeah. One of the things that has, uh, I don't think I could have imagined it when my first dog passed away, which was in the first year of this radio show, actually, in 2009. <clears throat> um, he was my first dog as an adult. I got him when I was 20. And he was 12 when he passed away. And he was like a, like a, an all-time heart dog, you know, of my life. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I thought that I could have ever had that again with a dog that intense you know and we have a, a pack now we have several dogs and uh there is one of them who feels like almost like this dog reincarnated with the kind of connection that i have with him so it is nice to know that you can have that again and of course i love all of our dogs dearly and they they too like you said they are our family we don't have human children we have lots of animals <laughs> <laughs> um so anyway, that was just something I wanted to point out and um, and that just acknowledge to people and to if if you are in a position to just if you're if you catch yourself comparing because it's not really productive. Um, now, as far as the flea medication goes, um, tell me a little bit about where you're coming from in bringing that up. What are you thinking? Yeah, you know, I, I was. I was listening to the show that you had done uh, a couple weeks ago, I think, on flea treatments. And over the course of the last few months, as this, uh, as these behavior issues had started to surface, and I was trying to kind of pinpoint, all right, did something happen? I don't think anything in particular happened. Um, but you know, I tried to, I was trying to kind of paint a picture of of his development. This, when did this surface? It surfaced at around ten months. And then I heard the broadcast, and I did some reading and it was interesting that I noticed that you know he was definitely a frustration intolerant dog from the start but I noticed that some of the the fear behaviors kind of coincided with when I started the first flea treatment Mm. and I didn't really I didn't realize it until I started to do the math and I started calculating backwards from the time that his first treatment happened and when the behavior surfaced so I was just curious as to whether or not it was possible that it was exacerbating, you know, a dog who might already have some sensitivity, um, if the flea medication might be doing that, because I know it's it's in a similar insecticide class as um, 
as Cipronol. And so I just was wondering if maybe there was any component to that, um, if maybe that was causing any kind of additional, um, you know, fear, fear, aggression or anything Mm -hmm. like that. So is it possible that that's contributing to it? Right. Absolutely. It's possible. So I'm not saying absolutely it is. Absolutely it's possible because I've seen it in my clients here uh, where we sort of tracked back and did the math and, oh, when did this when did this weird behavior start that the dog never did before for six or seven years in some cases? You have an adult dog. And it was like, oh, gosh, it was when we started this medication or that medication, you know, whatever it may be. There's a bunch of different ones. And I've done a number of shows on chemical flea medications over the years. And a few years ago, uh, met with a client whose dog was having anxious behavior. So it wasn't manifesting as aggression or really reactive behavior in that way, but it was anxious behavior. And I was like, what is going on with these flea medications? Because it was the same kind of thing. Well, but wow, gosh, we started this flea medication and this, that's when it started. So all we have is that that coincidence. It's anecdotal evidence over and over and over again is going to make you kind of like start thinking about it like, huh, that's weird. This has happened enough times. So I researched um, the, the, the one that I chose to research was fipronil, which is a, a common pesticide used in chemical flea medication. It's the one in the brand Frontline and a bunch of other ones, fipronil. And it... Um, causes hyperexcitation of nerve cells and I I really dug 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 through these studies um, to see what was it doing in the body because it, it I wasn't believing for a second um, oh it's totally safe for your dog right you know don't touch it and wash your hands and it might cause miscarriage in pregnant women as some of these say on the label, you know, don't touch it, blah, 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 blah. Oh, but totally fine to put it all over your dog or in your dog. I'm like, well, how is that? Don't buy it, pesticide companies, $1 billion a year flea and tick industry. So I researched it and it um, uh, kind of brushed off my animal science degree and found that how it works is it blocks the chloride channels in nerve cells so chloride ions can't pass through the channels which are in chloride ions are negatively charged so there's anions and cations so negative and positive charged ions right so we're talking about the charge of a nerve cell and how nerve cells work is that they fire signals you know i mean it's electric it's like it's like it's like electrical wiring our nervous system and we're messing with the charge of the cell so if you block the chloride channels it causes hyperexcitation of nerve cells and this can manifest in a number of different ways and for particularly sensitive individuals and there are known genetic mutations of dogs who cannot tolerate these known genetic mutations and that's what we know. There's also, I'm sure, what, a lot of what we don't know. Um, seizures, anxious behavior, uh, reactive behavior, um, you know, 
kind of down to just a, a skin burn kind of thing at the site. If it's like a top spot thing, sometimes the dog will just have a real raw burn, you know, a chemical burn. Uh, but it can cause certainly internal reactions as well. And so I kept digging and learned that medications, seizure medications, anticonvulsants, sedatives, and anti-anxiety medications do the opposite in the body. They open chloride channels. And when I found that information, I was like, whoa. So these pesticides block chloride channels and potentially in, in some dogs cause anxiety, reactive behavior, seizures. And then these anti-convulsants, anti-anxiety sedatives do the opposite in the body down on a cellular level we're talking so is it possible that these, this pesticide that's in the same class as the one that I did this research on, could that be causing him to be reactive? Yeah, it could. And I would absolutely not give him anything chemical for fleas. And, yeah. you know, I recommend flea busters for just treating your house. It's totally non-toxic. Fleas spend over half of their life cycle off of the animal and in your environment anyway. So it's more uh, more effective to actually treat your environment. And what Flea Busters does is it just, um, you brush it into any carpeting or area rugs and it dehydrates the carpet and it will trap any flea activity. So if he picks up a flea somewhere and brings it in, the flea, adult flea will, um, you know, feed on the dog, lay an egg or eggs. The eggs fall off of the dog into the environment and then we'll get blown either into the baseboards or we'll get trapped in carpeting or dog beds or, you know. And then the larva hatch, or the egg hatches into larva, the larva spins into a cocoon, and the cocoon hatches into an adult. And then the adult goes and finds the host and feeds on the dog, and the cycle continues. So if you make your environment inhabitable for fleas, then you're interrupting the life cycle. So if the dog picks up a flea, it's not that big of a deal. It's not gonna. It's gonna. It's not gonna be able to set up camp in your house. It'll just die. It'll lay right. eggs, and the eggs will dry up. Yeah, yeah. I was ambivalent about treating him for for flea and tick, and actually, I, I think I remember reaching out to you about it. Um, I don't have wall to wall in my apartment, so I was concerned that it wasn't going to be able to be as effective as if I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so after I read, I started reading, and and I heard the show, and I started reading about it. I was really upset. Because mm-hmm. it went against my instincts for for what was best for my dog, mm-hmm. and now I have to wait it out because it's a quarterly treatment. So I have to wait it out until you know December at least, mm-hmm. or January when it's out of the system to see if I notice a change in the behavior. And it's it's also difficult to tease out because I have a, a dog that's still an adolescent male. Yeah. And you know, is he is he truly fearful? Is he having a reaction? Is he being is he being a you know an adolescent dog with you know testosterone flowing through his veins? I don't know yeah. which one of these things is is causing it. Mm-hmm. And you brought up something that is is so important, and I wish we had another hour <laughs> to keep going because there's more that I want to talk to you about. You know, there's just so much more. Um, but but when you said that you went against your instinct, I I hear a lot. I hear this a lot after the fact whether it be with something like flea medication or whether it be working with a trainer. I mean, unfortunately, there are trainers out there who are too harsh 
and who take this whole idea of corrections and consequences and really cause a lot of damage. There's one who I'm not going to name by name, but there is one out here in Seattle who we have had dogs come from this trainer, um, this guy, who he's trashed them mentally and emotionally because he's he's like a way abusive kind of crazy. And the people say, I didn't feel like it was right when they were sort of watching him work their dog. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like this was good. And I got to, if, if you don't feel, if your gut is telling you that something's not good, stop it. It's your dog. If it's a flea medication that your veterinarian is pushing, you can say no, it's your dog. And if they're pushy and try to bully you, then find another veterinarian. That shouldn't be tolerated. And then the same thing with training. There's no really no regulation for this industry. So, you know, you're going to try to do your best to get as informed as you can. But if you're not comfortable with the person that you're working with, don't have them touch your dog. Stop the session. Say, you know what? We're done. And just because I've I've had enough, especially when you when you're working with this type of behavior where it's not easily resolved. And then you might go to somebody who has maybe a different technique and you're feeling desperate to resolve, you know, whatever. So yeah. listen to your gut, trust your gut and and listen and take action, because a lot of times people are, will say after the fact, oh, I, I didn't I kind of didn't feel right about this, but I didn't listen to myself. So, yeah, so. The, so thanks so much for coming on the show and kind of sharing your experience. And would you keep me posted and maybe we'll do a follow-up. I know that you had a meeting with a, a behaviorist locally and you're, we've worked with other trainers and we've talked about some stuff. So keep us posted um, on your progress and, you know, maybe we'll do a check-in in a little bit and, you know, certainly keep me posted in between via email and let me know what works and what doesn't and if you have questions. I will and thank you so much for having me on and I just want to let you know I've learned so much from the show. I've learned I listened to some of the episodes multiple times because it's been really invaluable in my relationship with Keen. So well, thank you. Yes, that makes it all worth it to hear that. <laughs> so thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you, Julie. Um I've got some great books. I'm kind of freaking out right now. I've got a new book from Alexandra Horowitz, Being a Dog, that I can't wait to read and interview her again. She's one of my favorite guests. And I just got a new book from Patricia McConnell. That's not coming out until next spring, so I won't be able to talk to her until then. But um, got a lot of great shows coming up this fall. Thanks so much, Linda, for being with us today. And we'll be back next Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. been listening to the dog show with julie forbes wednesday afternoons at two on alternative talk 11 50 a.m never miss another episode listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on itunes or soundcloud